in response to the preaching, we will sing from hymn 26, the stanzas 1 and 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, and that includes you, boys and girls, we live in a world full of broken promises. Our politicians will make all kinds of promises in order to get elected. And then once they are, they promptly break those promises. Happens all the time, doesn't it? We see that kind of thing all the time. All kinds of people and corporations make promises. But when it comes down to the crunch, they back away. And it makes us somewhat cynical. Someone will call you up or send you an email telling you that you have won some wonderful prize. But you don't even react because you know it's only a gimmick. It's just a ploy to try to get you to buy some product or service. People don't just give things away for nothing. You've got to pay for it one way or the other. There is no such thing as a free lunch. In preparation for this sermon, I read the story about John, a young man from a wealthy family who was about to graduate from high school. It was the custom in that affluent neighborhood where he lived for the parents to give the graduate an automobile. And John's father also promised that to his son. But then on the eve of his graduation, his father handed him a gift-wrapped Bible. John was so angry that he threw the Bible down and stormed out of the house. John and his father never saw each other again. It was the news of his father's death that brought John home again. As he sat one night going through his father's possessions that he was to inherit, he came across the Bible that his father had given him. He brushed away the dust and opened it to find a check dated the day of his graduation in the exact amount of the car that they had looked at together. Now, it's only a story and probably a spurious one, but it does illustrate an important point. John did not trust his father to deliver the promise that he had given to him. John was a cynic. He was influenced by what went on in this world full of broken promises. But from growing up with his father, he should have realized that his father was an honorable man, that he is a man who keeps his promises. John should not have taken his clue from the world and what he sees around him or from his own way of dealing with others, but from the trusting relationship that his father had established with him. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, That's also the way it is with our Heavenly Father and our relationship with Him. He makes some wonderful promises. He promises to forgive us our sins and to give us a new life now and into eternity. But how can you believe that? And there are lots of things going on around us. We see decay We see death, we see troubles, we see misery, and we see how cunning and deceitful the devil is and all those who do his bidding. 
In the midst of such a world, it's easy to think that that's all there is. And look at our own lives. God tells us that because of the Holy Spirit, we are new creatures. What evidence is there in our lives of a new life? Are we really any different from everybody else in spite of the fact that we are Christians and believe these promises? Are we really any different from the people all around us? We still live in our sins, don't we? Where is the evidence of a new life? It doesn't seem like it. It seems like a smokescreen, a cruel hoax. And therefore, the last promise regarding our glorious resurrection, can that really be true? Well, that's what Lord's Day 17 tells us, and it tells us that on the basis of God's word. It says that it is a sure thing that we have the forgiveness of sins, a new life, and also that God gives us a glorious resurrection. That's what we will deal with this afternoon. We will deal with the wonderful benefits of Christ's resurrection. And then we will see three things. We will see that because of his resurrection, we receive in the first place righteousness, in the second place power, and in the third place glorification. So then, this afternoon, it's about the wonderful benefits of Christ's resurrection. And then we will first see that we receive God's gift of righteousness. When the people Israel were exiled in Babylon, they were full of despair and anxiety. They wondered about their special status as God's covenant people. They wondered whether or not God had abandoned them forever. They knew that that is what they deserved. But they also knew that the Lord their God was a merciful God. And so in the midst of despair, they held out hope. They held out the hope that they would be able to, uh, that he would be allowed to return to the land of their fathers. They missed their home country. They wanted once again to be able to go to Jerusalem and to bring sacrifices in the temple. They longed to be a nation again. But it not, was not the land of Israel that they missed so much. They knew that God was angry with them. And that is why they were sent into exile in the first place. They wanted everything to be right again between God and themselves. You know, Psalm 85 speaks about the time after they were allowed to return from the exile. At this point, they are home again. The Lord God worked in the hearts of their captors and made them favorably inclined towards them so that he could come back to their homeland, to Israel. The Lord God had kept his promise. As it says in verse 3, he set aside all his wrath and turned away from his fierce anger. And so there is great rejoicing. It is proved that God had forgiven them their iniquity and that he has covered all their sins. He has shown favor to the land and restored the fortunes of Jacob, as it says in that psalm. Why do you think that God did that? Why did he forgive them their sins? And why did he allow them to return back to their homeland, to the promised land? Do you think that it was because of something that they did themselves? Did they 
earn a place in God's heart again? Did they pay for their own sins so that now they could be sprung from the prison of Babylon and be a liberated people in their own land? Well, note well that this psalm doesn't say that. It doesn't say that God's favor rests upon them because they are now such good people. They have learned a lesson. But that's not the case. They're still not any better than their forefathers. They're still sinful human beings. No, when it says in this psalm that he covered all their sins, then the authors are referring to the atonement. Not to the atonement that took place every year in the Holy of Holiest in the temple. But they are referring to a future event. And this psalm, this whole psalm points to the Lord Jesus Christ. This whole psalm is about Christ and about his wonderful work of reconciliation. He is the one who paid for all their sins. He is the one who obliterated their sins by the shedding of his blood. He is the one who made the payment in full for their sins. How could those Israelites be so sure? For at this point, it still had to happen. Christ still had to come. He still had to die for their sins. Well, they could be sure because of God's promise. God's promise concerning that Redeemer that would come. And it is a promise that he made already in paradise, right after the fall into sin. And the believers knew that when God makes a promise, it's a sure thing. You can bank on it. When God promises you something, you do not have to doubt. It will happen. And that is why in this psalm, the certainty can be expressed that their sins are forgiven, present tense, through Christ. Because of the certainty of God's promise, the Old Testament believers could already reap the benefit of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, even though it had not yet taken place. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, do you sometimes have doubts about the forgiveness of your sins? Does it sometimes seem in your life as if you are in prison, as if you are hemmed in because of your sins? You feel that God wants little or nothing to do with you because of your sins? Do you think that the promises can't be for you because, well, I'm such a bad person? Well, then look at what God has done. We now live in the New Testament time. We live after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you, did God not keep his promises? Just open your Bibles. And what does it say there? The promises are right there. The whole Old Testament points to the coming of Christ. And the whole New Testament testifies to the reality of Christ and to what he has done. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, the Lord Jesus Christ is alive. Christ died and he rose from the dead. It's a sure thing. Let the Holy Spirit open your eyes. 
believe the promises of your heavenly Father. He promised to forgive you your sins through his Son, Jesus Christ. And he promised you eternal life. Christ did not remain in the grave. There were many witnesses to the resurrected Christ. As it says in the Catechism, he has overcome death by his resurrection. Why? Well, it says so that he could make us share in his righteousness. When Christ rose from the dead, he opened the gates of prison. But then as he escaped from the prison, he did not lock the doors behind him. No, he left the gates wide open for all those who believe. He opened the door wide for you and for me so that we can enter as well. He said, those who are captive to sin, free. That's what it means. That's what it means when the catechism says that we can share in his righteousness. You all know what righteousness refers to, don't you? Especially the catechism students will know that because I keep asking them so that they can understand what it is, that they don't forget The word righteousness has the word right in it. It means that everything is right between God and us. How do we know? How do the authors of this psalm know? Well, the authors of this psalm looked at what God had done in the past and saw how God's promises were being fulfilled. They opened their Bibles and saw how God has dealt with his people throughout the ages. They saw from God's word how his promises were being fulfilled from one generation to the next and to the next. You must do the same. Look at God's word. Do you want proof that your sins are forgiven? Well, that proof was given at Easter. It was then that Christ paid in full the debts that you and I owe. And now, through faith, his righteousness is your righteousness. That is the first fruit of Christ's resurrection. Do you know what that means? That means that you have been given a new lease on life. It means that now you can throw off your old prison clothes and put on new ones. You've seen what prisoners look like, don't you? For example, those prisoners in Guantanamo Bay, uh, they've got these orange jumpsuits. Prisoners in other prisons do as well. It makes them easy to be identified. Can you imagine if you were one of them and what it would be like to be able to throw off those clothes and walk out of that prison free? You're giving new clothes. Your debt to society has been paid. You're free to do what you want. Well, that's also the way it is for those whose sins have been forgiven. And so don't put back on those prison clothes, brothers and sisters. The Lord doesn't want you to do that. He has freed you. The Lord God has has sprung you out of prison, and he has given you a new life. 
It's understandable, however, that sometimes we have our doubts. There is so little evidence of that in our life, isn't there? And that brings us to our second point, dealing with the gift of power. We look at ourselves and our fellow man and ask, where is this evidence that we have been given a new life? It often still feels as if we are still in prison. We experience the power of sin within us and outside of us. Where now is the power of Christ? Where is the power of the Holy Spirit? We look around us at the people in the pew and think about the sinfulness in our midst. We think about this brother or that sister. We look around us and we see that we are not any different from the church at Corinth. For example, for in the church at Corinth there were all kinds of problems. There was sexual immorality there, arrogance, members of the church taking each other to court. There was slander. There was gossip. You name it. They experienced it all. Well, we're not any different from Corinth. And there you see the power of sin. And so the question is, where is now the power of Christ in evidence amongst us? Do we really have any reason for expressing joy because we have been given a new life? Well, you see, there was also the problem of the author of Psalm 85, the sons of Korah. In verse 3, this author expresses thankfulness for their deliverance. They have returned to the promised land. God again looks upon them in favor. Once again, they can experience the forgiveness of sins as portrayed in the sacrifices made in the temple. But now what happens? Look at verse 4 and look at verse 5. It says, Restore us again, O God our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger throughout, through all generations? And then he continues in the same vein. In spite of their deliverance, there's disappointment. It's back to the same old thing. There is no longer evidence of the great joy of the deliverance that they experienced when they came back from exile. They lost the joy of salvation. There is sin amongst them. There is all kinds of rotten things going on. There is a crisis. What happened? Because there appears to be very little change in their lives. They still feel as if they're hemmed in as if they were still in prison. Perhaps you think the same about yourself as well. I know that I'm a redeemed child of God. I know the promises that he gives to me. And yet there is so much imperfection in my own life. Time and again, I fall back into the same sins. I don't do what God requires from me. I am not zealous enough. When it comes to my personal devotions. I don't live as close to God as I should. There are so many things wrong with me. And there are so many things wrong in the lives of others as well. In spite of the fact that we claim ourselves to be Christians. New creatures through the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is the power of the resurrection? 
Now, look at what it says in verse 8. The author of this psalm comes to a resolution. He knows where he must go. And that is why he says, I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints. What does the psalmist do, brothers and sisters? He goes back to God's word. He goes back to God's promises. He listens to what God has to say to him. He doesn't listen to his own heart. And therefore he says further, Surely his salvation is near those who fear him. You see, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, it's a matter of faith. And what is faith? Faith, as it says in Hebrews 11, verse 1, is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. When you have faith, you have a positive outlook. Faith is saying the same thing as Paul says in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Do you know what Satan wants you to do? He wants you to look at your failures. He wants you to look at the failures of your fellow believers. He would like nothing better than that's all you do. He wants you to see everything that's wrong in your own life and in the lives of others. He wants you to be defeatist in your attitude. He wants you to think as if he has won the victory. As if he rules the world and as if he rules your life. But ask yourself, does he? What's the truth? The truth is, brothers and sisters, and you can find it in God's word, that he has won the victory over death and sin. The Lord Jesus Christ has done that. The truth is that that victory has been secured, has been secured at Easter. The reality is that therefore God can now also make wonderful promises to you, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you have doubts about the forgiveness of sins, think about what Christ has done on Golgotha. And think about for whom he did that. For sinners. For you. And for me, who don't have everything altogether, far from it, who fail in every respect, but who nevertheless expect their salvation from God, don't stare yourself blind at the brokenness of this life. Don't be in despair because of broken relationships, because some people have long toes. Look at what God is doing in your life. And in the life of your fellow believers, there is progress. We see faithfulness. I see it every Sunday. I see brothers and sisters gathering around here together with their brothers and sisters in the Lord. They all come here because they want to be strengthened in their faith. 
And we also see their faithfulness in the way that they maintain the ministry of the word. And you see faithfulness in the way that we help one another. Again, with all kinds of shortcomings. But nevertheless, that's what we see happening here in this church. And so there are lots of other things happening. Don't let what happens in the world determine your outlook. Don't take your cue from the world. Do you think there's brokenness amongst us? Well, then take a look at the world. Because in the world, it's indeed a mess. Most marriages nowadays end up in divorce. That rarely happens among us. In the world, there is great despair and anxiety because of the economic uncertainty. Just listen to the news. A lot of people are in a panic. But we know that God is in control and that he will provide for us no matter what. And so we can be at peace. And so we can go on and on about showing the difference between us as renewed Christians and those who live in their sins. There is a great difference. And that is because God gives us peace. Because now already we have a beginning of the obedience that God requires from us. It's only a very small beginning. But it's there. Don't despair. And what about the comfort from God's word when a loved one dies? We know that those who die in the Lord will be with him forever and ever. They will be glorified. That's a comfort only we have. We come to the third point. And that is the third promise that God gives to us. Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our resurrection. A pledge is what you get at the time you get married. You exchange rings as tokens of faithfulness and abiding love. You give something of yourself to your partner, a ring. And that ring promises that you will be faithful to your wedding vows. Well, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did when he took his body into heaven. He took something with him into heaven that belongs to us, our flesh. And that flesh is a guarantee that we will have glorified bodies as well. And that we will have glorified bodies also in heaven when heaven and earth are reunited. Again, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, don't stare yourself blind at what you see here on this earth. Here on this earth, indeed, you see nothing but but, but decay and death. You experience it all around you. You see bodies going into the grave. And then you may wonder, is it really true that my believing child who died, my husband, my wife, my friend, will be raised from the grave someday? Is that also going to happen to me when I die? Is it really true? It seems unbelievable. However, Christ's resurrection is the proof. And brothers and sisters, it's a convincing truth. That should remove all doubt from your minds. There were many witnesses to his resurrection. It's not something that the early church made up. No, it really happened. 
it happened so that all those who believe may also have glorified bodies. We will have bodies that will never ever decay. And these will be perfect bodies. There will be no more handicaps. There will be no more diseases. There will be no more waning of strength as you grow older. And that's also what the psalmist speaks about at the end of the psalm. The sons of Korah stayed jubilantly in verse 9. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Glory refers to splendor, to beauty. It is a beauty, brothers and sisters, that we can only begin to imagine. And then the psalm speaks here about the glory of the Lord. Glory will dwell in the land. That promise will be fulfilled in its completeness on the last day. God promises that to us. And then there will be no more pain or sorrow. There will no longer be anxiety. There will be no depression. There will be no loneliness. There will be no tears. It will be eternal bliss. Psalm 85 expresses what we will experience in the last verses. The psalmist states jubilantly, Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. There is an intimate bond between righteousness and peace and love and faithfulness. Again, it is a description of total bliss. It's a picture of the coming kingdom over which Christ will reign. Open your Bibles time and again, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, and believe what it says there about the renewed life now and about the wonderful life hereafter. Think about such things. Believe God's promises and live in peace.